Thanks for joining us. This is the Deal Junkies podcast. I'm Gabe Johansson. I'm here with Dane McKinney, Trevor Howard, and Mike Nuss. And we want to go through a deal with you today. So a lot of people ask us, how do you do a deal? How do you structure a deal? So a little bit about what we're going to do on this podcast is we're going to take time uh, each week to talk about one of our favorite deals and how we piece that together. Uh, today, Trevor has nominated a property that he and I purchased together uh, a while back here in Salem, and he wants to go through it with us. So Trevor, tell us, uh, tell us about the deal. Tell us how big it is, where it is, why you bought it, what happened? Yeah, so this is two triplexes, so six units in Salem. It's all like two bed units. Um, we bought it for three fifty a triplex, seven hundred total. I don't know if you remember this, but it was right when I came to SMI. I was sitting in a boom meeting. Someone had this deal. They wanted to sell it to someone in the room. You're like, I'll buy it. Does anyone want to buy this so, with me? So how long? This is a couple years ago. Then. This is a couple years ago. Yeah, this is like. Uh, three years ago now. Okay, maybe. So SMI broker brings a deal to one of our broker meetings mm -hmm. and says, "I've got this six unit deal. Somebody want to buy it?" Yeah. And I and I said, "I want to buy it." You said you want to buy it, right. and then you said, "Anyone else here want to buy it with me?" <laughs> Everyone just sat in silence. And it was my first day. Like I just showed up. I didn't know anyone. I was like, "I want that too." <laughs> so so you're like, "Okay, cool. Go run some numbers." Okay. All right. This is good. I'm glad I'm glad you're reminding me. I didn't remember any of this. Okay. So they bring a deal. It's a six plexus, two triplexes. Are they on the same tax lot or, or two separate tax lots? Two separate tax lots there. Okay. Um here in Salem. Yep, that's in Salem. And it's how much again? How much is the deal? Uh three fifty each. Seven hundred. Seven hundred for a six plex. So that's pretty low price. So would that be because it's three years ago, or do you think pricing would be around the same today, or has it gone up in value? Um it, it would be a little bit more, I would say, but I mean, it was in rough shape. It, it, the rents were, the lowest rent was like $400. So, okay. So we've improved the rent roll and made the value go up. Yeah. Subsequently. Okay. So tell us, why is this one of your favorite deals? Yeah, it was my favorite because it was the first one we did together. Um, it was not my first creative deal, but it was a creative deal. And then I just liked that I came into the room and no one wanted to buy it. So I was just sitting there at the right place, right time. So I got to buy a deal. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Everybody says, I want a deal. I want a deal. I want a deal. And then you say, okay, we got a deal. Who wants it? And everybody, what What do you think that is? Why do you think people don't raise their hand? Are they scared? I don't know. They just worked out in the morning. Their arms were tired. Like, Maybe they're not, they're just not in that mindset or whatever. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. want to know what you saw in the deal that got you excited. Cause I've been in a lot of rooms like that and no, not to brokers are great. I love brokers. <laughs> But typically when they're bringing a deal to a room full of people, they're just shitty deals and people don't raise their hand because they're just shitty deals. So what is it about this one that got you actually excited? Why did you like this one that made you raise your hand, which I'm sure you're trembling, you're probably puckered a little bit. Like <laughs> the guy next to you is like, who's this guy? First day is going to, yeah, I'll, I'll do a deal with the owner. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, the price per door, like it just made sense conceptually on the front end. Okay. And then- Gabe was in on it. I was like, that guy seems to know what he's doing. So if I probably do it with him, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found out we could do it with no money. So I was like, that all sounds great That's to me. That's all you need for me. My ears perk up. How, yeah. how are you going to do this deal with no money? You're going to buy a $700,000 building with no money? Yeah. So I guess we couldn't do it with no money. We could end with no money in the okay. deal. Okay. Um, the seller was willing to carry a contract on a portion of it behind the bank for... 
it was like, what was it? Or, or, I don't remember the exact numbers. Like, let's say we had to bring like 250 down. They're willing to carry for 350. Okay. So the seller was willing to carry a portion mm -hmm. more than what even our down payment was going to be. Correct. And how do they carry behind the bank? What does that look like? Yeah, it can look a few different ways. Like they can put in second position to, you know, that property. If or a your bank's property. okay with that. Yeah, to that property or a different property you own. Or they can just be a lender, like a you get a line of credit, like like a credit card essentially, right? So if personal they're willing loan. to yeah, a personal loan if they're willing to lend you money. Um so in this case they were just willing to lend us money. Um And it, if I'm remembering this deal correctly, the people who we bought it from, they bought it on like a fire sale for like a hundred grand or some stupid ridiculous number. Like somebody was somebody said, We have to sell it by five o'clock today. You can pay whatever you want. And they named a price and they bought it. So they made a ton of money on us. Like they did really, really well oh, yeah. on this. So they, they, they were probably even happier than we are. Oh, they're thrilled. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to deal with those tents and they just collect monthly <laughs> checks and got a ton of cash. Like <laughs> yep. they made a whole bunch. Do you remember what they paid for it? Oh, they paid like three hundred for all of it. Oh, three hundred for for something uh, like that. One fifty yeah. each or something. Something like that. Like that. Okay. Just all cash, just like you said. Okay, so we come in, we know they've paid a lot less. They haven't had it very long. They're gonna make a ton of money on us. We're okay with that. That doesn't like sometimes you look at a deal and I, I, like somebody will go, well, I'm not sure I want to pay this much because the last person only paid this much. It seems like they're making too much. Like that's a thing, right? It's a real thing. It's a wrong way to look at a deal. It's a terrible way to look at a deal. <laughs> but you're just going like, well, I just don't want them to make that much money on me. We don't, we're just like, we want them to make as much as they want to make. We don't care. Just let us buy the thing and let us buy it with no money. We want to buy a deal with no money. That's all we care about, right? And that it pencils out over the long run, but um, <laughs> small, that's step well, one. Small clarifier. Okay, so small right clarifier. out of the gate, though, if they're going to carry a note for three fifty, and we only need two fifty down, we're going to end up with a hundred thousand dollars cash back at closing, rather than putting a down payment in. We're going to have a war chest. Yep, which we needed on this because it was renting for four hundred a unit. Like there was leaking roofs, like rotted floors. Four hundred a unit three years ago. Four hundred oh dollars rent. Yeah, yeah. Like four hundred dollars rent. Yeah, that was the lowest. And then I think on and then there was others for like five and six hundred. Market well, rate at that time was twelve to thirteen hundred for those. So it's uh you're fifty, sixty percent below market. Yep. Way below market. Yep. Okay. So how do you how do you rectify that? So you find so you do the deal, you do it with no money, you get a little bit of money back, and then and then what happens? What's the process look like? Yeah, I mean, it's going through and doing the renovation process at that point. So you're issuing notices because a lot of these units are like not safe for them to live in. Right? So you're you're issuing them themselves, or you have property managers do this? Uh, your property management company issued <laughs> it for. Okay, so SMI manages the property, so they're doing all the notices and everything for Correct. you. Correct. Yeah, so they gave notices. It's not safe to live in. Like these units are pre fucked up for some of them. So <laughs> bleep that out, Dave. This is a show for kids. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we get excited. I know. I get it. I get it. So yeah. So like the, the units aren't safe to live in. Like these people are living in like kind of dirty areas. Like it's leaks and all that okay. stuff. Um, so we go renovate it, you know, get it. So it's habitable, new floors, new paint, fix all so these you're, problems. So you're in there yourself painting it and fixing it. And every day you're like taking time off work at night and going over there and painting and working on this roof. I wasn't, but I thought you were. Oh, or were you not? <laughs> I, oh. I don't even know where the property is. Is that rules and responsibilities <laughs> addendum to the partnership agreement? I said I like the deal. I didn't say I want to go to the property. I've never. I don't. I think we went over there one time. Yeah. So no, the the property management company has a list of vendors 
they send us what stuff will cost and we approve or disapprove of it, give them like a general plan of what we're looking to do. And then if it can't do it in house with what they have, you know, we go find other contractors to take. So the the renovation scope, depending on how big or small it is, you might be able to utilize the maintenance teams at the property management company, or you may have to go hire your own contractors. Correct. But you're not a sweat equity guy. You're not in there. You're not swinging a hammer. You're not- Not on this one. You don't have a paintbrush. You've done it though. Done it. Not on this one. Just to say you, just to say you did it. Um, no, I did it because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. But, okay. <laughs> but not on this one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. So tell us what else you like about this deal. Yeah. I mean, so it was a value add play. We knew we could get the value to like $1.2 million of this thing once we stabilized and got rents to market rate. There was a lot of room for rent growth. We had a war chest of money we could go spend to renovate these units and we could end with no money into the deal. So, I mean, and then we could cash flow on it. Okay. So you're printing money. You're buying the deal with no cash. You're getting some cash back. You're putting that cash back into the property. You're raising rent. So you said 1.2 is is the business model. That's where you want to, the business plan is to get to 1.2. Have we got there yet or is it still have time to go? It's not, it's not worth it yet. Still time to go. I mean, we could maybe sell it for that, but we didn't go through and do all the units at once. Right. Cause some of these units, maybe one was at like seven or eight or 900 or whatever it was, or maybe they just partially kicked someone out and their rent is close enough. So we're not going in and we're not trying to displace everyone if their unit is. So okay. you're not clearing the property out. You're just doing it over time. Over time with the, you know, the units first that are not safe to live in through like a QLR process. So, Mm -hmm. uh, for, for those of you who are new to real estate there, you know, we got rent stabilization a number of years ago, they outlawed no cause eviction. So back in the day, you could just give uh, a notice to somebody to move out for pretty much any reason. You could renovate the unit, re-rent it, uh, at market rate today. You can't do that unless there's a couple of different reasons. And one of those is you're going to renovate the unit. It's not going to be safe or the unit's not habitable for the tenant to live in while you're doing the renovation. Other reasons are you're going to move into the unit or move a family member in, or you're going to sell the property and they're going to do the same. So, um, so the loophole, I guess you would say as a landlord is you still have the opportunity to give somebody, we call it QLR for qualified landlord reason. Um, but you have to pay them one month's rent and you have to give them 90 day notice. And so you're saying on a couple of these units, they were not in great shape. Uh, floors were caving in, roofs caving in, something's happening and you go in and you do a QLR. So you're paying these folks one month's rent. You're giving them 90 days notice, say, we're going to have to take possession of this unit so that we can go turn it. And you did that on a, on a couple of these and started working through it just one by one over the course of a long period of time. Yeah. And we may have done cash for keys on some of them too, just to you know, shorten up that. Well, time tell frame. us, tell us what cat, what is cash for keys? Yeah. Rather than waiting the 90 days, you know, offering someone more cash to willingly leave sooner. Um, so if they'll leave on their own accord, you'll pay them three grand or five, whatever it may be. Okay. To motivate them to, to move sooner so mm-hmm. that you can do what you're going to do. Great. You get, you gentlemen have any questions for Trevor on this <laughs> Lancaster sixplex. You guys both seem to know it pretty well. <laughs> I'm, I'm remembering it now. Now that he, he's yeah, yeah, he's got the juices flowing. So on cash for keys, how much are you typically shelling out for that? The least amount possible. Usually, I mean, I find like three to five grand. It depends on what their rent's at. I don't, I don't know if we ended up doing on that or not, but I would think we did it for like three to five grand a unit. Mm-hmm. Is my guess, and that's coming from the the war chest that you, yeah, or out of pocket. Yeah, I've bought properties where I went in and gave a letter to everybody that we'd give them five grand 
plus their full deposit back if they just give us a 30-day notice mm -hmm. and had zero people take it. How big was that property? Uh, that one was 20 units in Portland. Yeah. So cash for keys is it's a it is one strategy, but for me it hasn't been extremely successful. The idea though is is that you don't want to go in and just kick everybody out. You want to you know if it's time if if they're if the five grand makes a difference in their life and they can move somewhere else and they're happy to do it. It's a win win for the landlord and the tenant. But the the idea is is I, I guess one of the risks is is depending on how you set your financing up. If you went and did that deal with private money you would have to move through that business plan faster mm -hmm. because your money's got a clock ticking on it. And so now you can't just sit around and wait to hope that the tenants are going to leave. Because I can tell you this much, if those units are at $1,200 per, those people are going to leave every year or two. You're going to get attrition all the time. But if they're at $400 in 20 years, they're still going to be there at $400. Like they'll move their cousin in and their aunt in. Somebody will, you know, they'll just pass it on and sublease it because where else are you going to find a unit for $400? So. Yeah. And that's a good lesson. It's one lesson I learned early is there's a difference between maximize and stabilize. And early on in my career, it was maximize every deal. And it was, you have to win this deal. You just have to get every little penny out of it. And, and actually it just sacrificed a lot by trying to have that mindset. Whereas look at it is, well, what does it take to stabilize? Cause that's winning the game for us, right? Like you mentioned the other night when we were interviewing, it's you just want to own all the real estate. And so defining when you like you define the game as playing the game. And so you don't need to maximize everything, but you have to be stable. And, and when you talked about in the past episode where you had three different things going on in your life, business model wise, and any single one wasn't a big issue, but all three of them hitting at the same time. Right. And so the problem with that is just none, none of those areas of your life were stabilized and stabilizing an asset before you move on to the next asset a hard lesson to learn especially when you want to own so much real estate and you want to control it all what, what if you're buying five deals at once yeah exactly <laughs> which, which one do you stabilize you first well yeah, there you go yeah. and so now you look at well what's the biggest like maybe stabilization is just cut the losses from happening or cutting the losses from 10k a month to 5k a month and then from 5k to 3k and so having that stabilization plan it probably took me 10 years to learn um Maybe not that long, five, five or six. You learned it pretty early. Is there anything that led to that or is it just surrounding yourself with someone with experience that helped that? Losing money quickly yeah. taught me about stabilization. Because um, it's it's great when you plug into a spreadsheet, but things don't always go to plan on your spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So I'll, you know, I didn't account for this to cost whatever this contractor to not have a license and pull a permit. Now we got to pay double for it. Um, so like just, yeah, just losing money quickly on those deals when you are bleeding and you don't have that war chest or maybe you ran through it, like that showed me the true importance of like, you, you personally have to go and figure that stuff out and like manage it and figure out how to get it stable. Once um, cause you pay for it if not, <laughs> what's Once up? your property manager do that for you? No, they, they don't know what your debt is. <laughs> um, they just know what rents you're bringing in for the most part. And, and I mean, they know to an extent, but they don't care as much as you do. It's not out of their pocket. They don't like to call you and ask you to write a check, but 
to, to Dane's point, property management is not asset management. So they're not in charge of your business plan. You're in charge of your business plan. They're, they're very much nuts and bolts to post your notices and to get the units turned and to get them rented and make sure you have a good tenant base and that they're doing all your accounting and the bills are paid and things are taken care of. But at a higher level, you've either got to be doing it or you got to have somebody paying attention to where you're at in your business plan to make sure you're going to hit it because that's not really what property management is there for. Yeah, it's such a good distinction. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and people that bank on their property manager to be their asset manager always lose at the end of the day. And the other thing is like property management, there's, you know, the way I built my property management company, the whole goal on the client side of it was how do we align our goals with yours as a property owner? There's no real way to align your goals as a property manager with an owner, right? So you get them 500 bucks more a month in rent. Okay, well, that's 40 bucks a month to you in management fees. Nothing real significant there. Okay, well, then how can you make your income? Well, you mark up work orders, you mark up labor, you mark up these. Okay, so now every renovation costs a lot of money. And so like when I was building that conversation, that that company and I was bringing on clients myself, I'd have that conversation with them is like, look, here's how we're going to try and align ourselves in you. We're charging top rate fees. We're not doing markups on things, but I'm not your asset manager. I have GCs. You're not going to get any of those GCs on your projects because they're on my projects. I've got other vendors. We'll, you know, we'll get things done for you, but saving you as much as you can possibly save on that unit turn is not my goal. My goal is to use all my resources to get my turns done the best and get right. And so you have to understand that it's your job to manage that manager and know exactly when you're not in alignment. And then how do you change the discussion to then get yourselves in alignment? I think that's a thing that people miss. Yeah. yeah. So, so as part of this process, you've had to become an asset manager. You've had to learn how to asset manage and how to manage property managers. And I'm still learning how to. It it takes a lot more attention than I first realized. I thought, because when you start out, real estate is passive, everyone tells you. It is not passive. <laughs> not at all. It's a business. Um, so learning learning that and staying on top of that and tracking the spreadsheets and like monthly checking. So now every month I check in and see where everything's at, where I thought it would be, what everything costs and why. And then I ask them the questions, why did it cost this or where's this and what's that? How, how could it be passive? Somebody said, hey, I've got, you know, I've got $100,000 I want to put into real estate. Could they throw a deal in with, with you or with us or find a way so they could get their capital, you know, working for them and have a much more passive experience? Is that an option? Yeah, you could go invest with a partner and, you know, give someone money and they know what they're doing and now you're just the money partner. You don't deal with anything. And yeah, that's relatively passive. All right. Have you ever but, done that? No, <laughs> I, I haven't. Just you didn't do that on the sixteen unit. No, I was owner in that with. But um, one more thing too to dive into on that deal before we get more off topic. Um, the debt on the deal. So like, we used a DSCR loan on that. What's DSCR? Debt service coverage ratio. What's that? Acquisition. On acquisition. What's yeah. debt service coverage ratio mean? It means those words. <laughs> so, so, so for, for everybody you listening. You don't have to know what you're doing okay. to be successful okay. in real estate. So debt, debt service is your payment. Sure. That's your mortgage payment. And coverage means the bank wants to cover their own butt to make sure that the property is going to make enough money to make the payment to them. Yeah. So what's the ratio that your bank is willing to take risk on you for how much of the income needs to cover that. Yeah. So they look at all the money you're bringing in minus the expenses divided by the debt is that number over one. 
in okay. this specific loan type. So a one to one would mean all your income goes to make that payment. Correct. And a one to one like one point five or you're whatever. making fifty cents for every. So how they want half of the net income to cover the payment. So so one point five would be a very conservative loan and a one point would be super aggressive loan. Yeah. And when you're running, we're running DSCR loans on this resi stuff. They're not looking in the commercial space. It's 1.25 typically for a DSCR. They're truly tracking your NOI and all your income and expenses. In the residential world with these DSCR lenders, it's not a really a 1.0 that they're even, they're, they're looking at your expenses as taxes, insurance, and that's about it. So like, there's no turnover. There's no maintenance. There's no no reserve, management. No reserve. Not all these. Uh, no landscaping. Landscaping, utilities, all the things that it takes. Those don't exist. <laughs> okay. So when when a property may run at say forty percent expense, they're underwriting at ten, something like that. That I think they actually use the number ten for. They may do taxes, insurance, and ten percent or something like that. Okay. So you're getting sort of this fairy tale. Uh, way of modeling the property and underwriting it to where they're giving you a a very in in our our terms or the way we view that it'd be a risky loan because they're giving you much higher leverage. Yeah, I mean they they determine it's not up to me to determine how risky the loans are that they give, but I'm just trying to see what I do to qualify for them. Um, <laughs> Fair. Are these lenders still in business? Yeah, they're, they're, okay. these, these are, this is how all your DSCR loans go. Like. And all the loan brokers looking at them, like they're not property owners. They don't know what these extra expenses are. But you pointed out in the beginning, that's not necessarily a commercial lender. They're one to four. Yeah. So this is like a one to four unit lender, kind of similar to your conventional loans, but you don't need all the DTI to qualify. So they're underwriting the deal based on the deal, the performance of the property heavily versus the performance of the the borrower. They're, They're looking at the deal itself. And then they look at you, do you have experience and is your credit score X, Y, Z? In the conventional space, they look at your monthly income is this, you can afford this much more of a mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, okay. DSCR loan. So that's what you got on this Lancaster deal. Yeah. So we got two loans, two separate tax lots. So we did two loans on it and went that route. And then we did interest only loans. They're five years of interest only, and then they switch to a 30-year AM or whatever, and then they can it's adjustable rate every five years after. So do these loans go for 30 years or 35 years? So it's, I think, I don't remember, I'll have to look at the loan docs again, one of those. But it's interest only for the first five, which increases your cash flow, gives you some time to stabilize that property. Interest only is a really great technique to use if your lenders will give it to you, especially in a value add play, because it gives you the time to go in and reinvest in the property and get it performing the way you need it to be. You need to avoid phantom income. Yes. That's the big thing is because you can't write off principal, right? So like you're paying back the loan with principal. You're not supposed to write it off. <laughs> I guess you can do whatever you want. We, as long as you don't get audited, you do whatever you want. There's a question for some of our interviews. They probably won't want to answer that. How question. do you write principal off and not get caught by the IRS? That's what we all want to know. You don't talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> I did. So you know, Gabe made a really good point early on with that seller second. How much freedom that gave you to stabilize versus maximize. Um, in that scenario, kind of the pressure's taken off because A, you've already got cash, so you've got a war chest to go to work with. A, you don't have to refinance and get any money out right away. You probably have the ability to, the way you structured it, potentially 
get some more cash out when the refund when the reposition is done and you get that loan over do you have two different balloon maturity dates with those two loans your dscr loan and your owner occupied loan or your um the your second. seller second and then how did that shape your stabilization and refinance plan going forward yeah so on the first loan there is no balloon on it just switches to an amortization schedule eventually and then it's adjustable rate still so every it's capped it can change by like two percent max each five years or whatever it is on the seller second we have a 10-year balloon on it interest only no amortization so that thing's due in 10. um i structured it that way because i feel as if i have 10-year debt it is really hard to lose with mm -hmm. when i look at all the market cycles 10 years surpasses the amount of times and then you combine that with a value add property it is very hard to lose so i'm doing that to hedge risk if mm -hmm. we did it in five it would be fine if we did in three it would have been fine mm -hmm. but i want 10 because i just want the least amount of risk possible when i do that so how are you going to pay that off we get to 10 years what what do you do to get that money back to the I'm going to so, call you and hope you have the money to pay it. That's a bad plan. Uh, no. So so I would imagine at that time you're selling the property or you're refinancing? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll talk to you, I guess, later on in eight more years. But at that point, yeah, you're refinancing the property to pay off that note and then, you know, place new debt on the, what you have. In so the at that point, loan. would you pay off the first and the second or just, I mean, you I have to if you're refinancing, right? Yeah, I'd pay off the existing first and then put a new first on it. Or you could go take out a new second and pay off the second and leave the first. Sure. Place. Yeah. You could do that too. Or you could just sell it and clear it all and then roll it into something else. So you decide that you have some time to figure that out before it, the loan. Yeah. We, we have, you know, 3% debt on it though. So I don't want to pay it off anytime soon. Okay. So you're not motivated and that rate stays flat 3% for 10 years. So there isn't like a escalation, no escalation. that makes you at some point, we got to start thinking about getting off of this debt. Correct. Okay. What happens if you get to the end and the business plan didn't work and you don't have the equity there to pay your seller off? What do you do? I've made a lot of mistakes if that happens um, and it was very irresponsible. Um, that will not happen. But it, I suppose let's let's brainstorm and it, say it did. Downside let's, risk. Yeah, it yeah. could happen. There yeah, is okay, a assume, possibility it could happen. Okay. Let's assume. That, so at that point, the seller could take back the property essentially and assume our first mortgage um, if they wanted to. Or well, they, we, we wouldn't want to let that happen. We, we would probably, if, if I got in that case, I would go talk to a seller and be like, hey, here's what happened. Here's how I'm going to get out of it. Can I pay you more money than you're making now? And we extend it for six months. Okay. So you go back to the seller and you beg for mercy. And you say, we can't get you paid off now. Show them a plan. You show we would, them a we, plan. We would, love, we would love to keep making payments to you and we'll increase the interest rate and we'll do whatever it takes so that you'll give us the time to go out and complete our business plan. So if you took on a similar deal and you only gave yourself three years and we got to the end, that's a much harder, that's why we try to build enough runway in. And if if you get there in three years, you go, oh, the market shifted, rates went up from you know three and a half to 8% or whatever. Now, what do we do? It's not, we're not in a climate where we want to refinance. So it may be that we've built enough equity into the project, but it, interest rates are 10%. We may say, hey, can you hang on a little bit? We think rates are going to come down. We don't want to re refund. Yeah, that specific that. deal had enough meat on it to where even if interest rates were 10%, still, and we didn't want to pull cash out of it, like you're fine. Well, and you said you paid 700000 for it. So in 10 years, conservatively, you think it's- Conservatively, probably about 
twelve million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you don't go wrong. Right there. No, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, in so I think it's worth one point two in today's market, and then in you know ten years, I don't know, one point eight, something like that. I, I could project it if we have four percent rent increases and blah blah compounded over time, and tell you you know what that would look like. Okay. So you get to the end, you've got a, you, you, you leveraged into a deal, 700, you bought a $700,000 building, you borrowed 800,000. Yep. Now it's going to be worth 1.8. You just generated a million dollars of equity out of thin air with no money out of pocket. Yeah. And now you're going to go refinance that and maybe whatever loan you get on that 180, either you keep it or you sell it and roll into the next deal. But if you refinance that and somebody gives you a loan for one, three or one, four, now you just pocket half a million bucks and you're off you're off. I mean that's a that's your payday, right? I mean it's debt. If you borrow against it, it's debt. There's no taxes. Mm -hmm. And this is how a lot of people have generated a lot of wealth is by understanding that money is debt. And if you know you can borrow money against hard assets, and that's what the banks like, make make the debt your payday. Yeah. I love it. That's why I'm a deal junk. <laughs> <laughs> you understand money is debt. <laughs> Well, yeah. And that's how we print. That's how it becomes a printing machine is by the debt is the mechanism that prints the capital. Longer the term, the better. This that's for another that's for another show. It I is for another show. I think, <laughs> I think that might be for a whole series of shows. Ooh. We'll talk about money creation and Ooh. why why is money debt? All right, guys. Thanks for joining us on the Deal Junkies podcast. This is Gabe Johansson, Dane McKinney, Trevor Howard, and Mike Nuss signing off. See you next time.